Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris, and I have no co-host again this week. <laughs> um, after having uh, Eric fill in for a couple of times, Lee back uh, from her maternity leave, we'll say. Um, unfortunately, I am once again... But that's not a problem. Uh, I'm going to keep diving ahead, uh, at least for this episode. Um, Lee will be back, obviously, in the future and things. Just for the sake of recording schedule, I wanted to get this episode out, kind of keep the ball rolling. Uh, but before we get into this week's film, I uh, wanted to kind of just chat about some of the stuff that I've seen recently. Uh, at the time that I'm recording this one, uh, the Oscars have actually just happened, uh, the 95th Academy Awards, which is something I think Lee and I will probably get into a little bit more over on the Patreon um, when we're, we're kind of prepping uh, for our um, April 1st episode there. Uh, but uh, So tune in for all of that. We're kind of going to uh, talk about and do an episode on one of the uh, big heavy hitters, if you can't already guess what that one would be. But uh, otherwise, uh, some other cool stuff that I've seen, like in relation to the Oscars, um, I went and saw Living uh, with the Bill Nye film, uh, was the last kind of of the big Oscar, a movie that was in the big Oscar categories that I hadn't had a chance to see yet. And I'm assuming pretty much everyone who listens to this podcast uh, knows that it's a remake of Kurosawa's Ikaru, uh, which is a fucking masterpiece of a film, uh, one of... Kurosawa's best and an absolutely beautiful piece of cinema. Um, so I was intrigued to kind of see how uh, an English remake of that story was going to go. And having heard all the great praise about Bill Nye's performance, which I will say right off the bat is undeniable. He he gives a fantastic performance. Um, it's great that it was acknowledged for an Academy Award nomination. Um, there was no way it was going to win, though. <laughs> um, but so I went into living obviously having the context and the understanding of Ikaru and what I was not expecting about that film was that it was going to be a straight up fucking remake. Um, almost like scene for scene remake of Ikaru. Uh, sort of the, the, I mean, I'm assuming everyone knows the story, but like the path that he ends up going on after his diagnosis, you know, the, the kind of meeting the young man who kind of takes him out to the party life and then the, the sitting down with the young woman that he works with. It's, it's really almost a beat for beat remake of the, of uh, the Kurosawa classic. And because of that and kind of knowing where all of these beats are and when it fell into place like that, I was just kind of sitting there being like, cool. Now when's this scene going to happen? And then this, and then this, and it seemed very kind of standard and formulaic and it didn't kind of bring any new perspective or interest for me into that kind of story. I mean, basically, if I'm going to watch that film, I'm going to watch Ikaru. Um, so, I mean, it's it's not to say that it's a badly made film. It's just I have seen this film before made way better, I suppose. <laughs> um, but like as an exercise of kind of a, a English remake of a classic Japanese film, I mean, you could do a whole lot worse. Um, so that, that's living. It's worth checking out. I mean, just for, if you're like me, an Oscar completist, I would say, give it a look. 
Um, but as always, go back to the Kurosawa. Go back to Ikaru. It's a fucking masterpiece. Um, the only other kind of big Oscar-y one that I finally caught up on was I got to watch uh, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, uh, the Laura Poitras documentary about Nan Golden um, taking on the Sackler family. This movie fucking rules. Um, <laughs> I, I was surprised that it uh, it actually didn't win the Academy Award because it kind of... Um, I mean, I understand 100% why Navalny took it, and Navalny also another fantastic documentary. But basically, if I had had a chance to see All the Beauty and the Bloodshed uh, back in 2022, um, it would have easily made my um, top 20 of the year list and video. I, I absolutely fucking adored this film. Um, the kind of way that Laura Poitras kind of is able to weave the the story of Nan Golden's life without it kind of falling into this kind of saccharine kind of stereotypical biopic story and the way that she's kind of always able to relate it back to an idea of an outsider whether that be represented in through her sexuality her the, her relationships with people where her life goes her sister the unfortunateness of uh, what happened with her sister and then also wrapping it all around in with addiction which ends up being like the kind of key aspect of the film as we jump forward to the present day with her um having you know overcome an opioid addiction and forming a organization that it's basically about them trying to take on the Sackler family who knowingly put oxycontin out into the world for everyone knowing it's highly addictive nature and the destructive purposes like you know the destructive nature that it could have um and basically them calling on the art world having this very famous art person in the art world calling on famous uh, museums to remove the Sackler name from all their donations and, you know, the wings and stuff. It is such a powerful story of uh, this beautiful artist. And kind of, if you're not familiar with Nan Golden's work, I highly recommend checking out some of it. It is incredible photography work. And then kind of tying it in with that modern day opioid struggle. I just thought it was a phenomenal documentary. Um, it just, from the second it starts, I'm engaged with what is happening. I cannot wait to see kind of how the story weaves and what they end up doing with it. I, I fucking loved it. I, I cannot recommend that film highly enough. Um, but I'll just quickly wrap up talking about, I'm just looking at my letterbox here. Went on a bit of a weird kick. I rewatched Dave, the I, Ivan Reitman film. That movie's just fun. <laughs> I miss kind of these, uh, the kind of mid-budget, kind of just wholesome comedies. I'd say adult comedy, because there's no way a kid would be interested in watching a movie about a fake president. But yeah, God, just just fun times. But uh, I did finally get around to see uh, Creed, uh, Creed 3, uh, Michael B. Jordan's directorial debut, and I liked it a whole lot better than Creed 2, I'll tell you that much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a solid solid entry into that franchise. I'd probably put it, you know, right in the middle. It's not as good as Creed, but it's way better than Creed 2. Um, Jordan's solid as a director. Um, the emotional arc that he kind of weaves with for his characters is pretty fantastic. And uh, there's some really wonderful kind of nuances, visual nuances, and his eye for visual storytelling is pretty switched on for a first-time director. Um, I won't go into any spoilers, but I, I really fucking loved uh, the final fight. Um, there's sort of a moment in that, sort of in, I think, the second round, where things kind of shift into a more kind of very interesting way, and I thought that was excellently handled, and 
kind of progress the story forward in an emotional kind of character way that was purely through visuals that I thought was absolutely fantastic and really kind of bumped it up a half a star at least for me. And the only other one I'll kind of talk about quickly is uh, Scream 6. Uh, <laughs> I am a big fan of the Scream series. Uh, Scream 1 is a fucking masterpiece. Uh, we did a whole episode on it over on Patreon, a commentary for that uh, a couple of years back. Um, really enjoyed Scream 5, the one that came out in 2021. I thought that was a kind of fun reinvigoring of the franchise, uh, kind of similar to like 10 years earlier when Scream 4 kind of popped up and did that again. Um, so I went like opening night, I'm all in on Scream 6. It's the same guys, uh, the directors who did uh, Ready or Not, which was fantastic. Um, I loved the first sort of 20 minutes of Scream 6. I thought it was such an interesting way to open that film. Again, I'm not going to go into any spoilers, but as the film kind of went on, it kind of ended up falling into a similar kind of trap that, I mean, would be the one negative thing I'd have to say about Scream 5, where it's not directly doing a remake or a reimagining of Scream 2, but it is at the same time. And um, it just kind of, for me, as it's over two hours long, which was just a bit much. I mean, I, I normally hate complaining about runtimes, but that it just seemed to be kind of dragging things on uh, without, and the breaks between kind of interesting or suspenseful or engaging set pieces seem to kind of be a pretty wide gap. Um, that being said, Dermot Mulroney, fucking awesome. Anytime he gets to show up and just chew the scenery, I'm all in. Similarly with Henry Zerny, um, cannot wait to see him in Mission Impossible 7 later this year. I kind of love that these guys have brought him back and he's having a little bit of a resurgence. That's, that's always fun. But yeah, Scream 6, solid, fun. I mean, you know, it's Scream 6. What, what, what more do you want? Uh, you know, it's not, <laughs> if you're going in expecting like an absolute phenomenal film, I mean, you know, just go in, have some fun, watch some great kills and have a, have a couple of laughs. It's, it's not bad. But on that note, it is uh, probably time we talk about this week's Criterion film, which is one that I have heard a lot about over the years, uh, but have not actually ever sat down to see. And that is René Clément's 1952 film, Forbidden Games. A timeless evocation of childhood innocence corrupted. René Clément's Forbidden Games tells the story of a young girl orphaned by war and the farm boy she joins in a fantastical world of macabre play. At once mythical and heartbreakingly real, this unique film features astonishing performances by its child stars and was honoured with a, with a special Foreign Language Film Academy Award in 1952. Spoiler alert for the trivia later on. Alright, Forbidden Games. Uh, this was a film uh, similar to, obviously, a lot of films in the collection. I had heard a lot about over the years, but had never actually sat down to watch. Um, it's kind of one of those ones, you know, the late 50s, uh, sorry, early 50s kind of French cinema, kind of ahead of that kind of Truffaut, Goddard kind of wave, or around that same time, but not kind of going for that neorealism, and kind of had this reputation of being an absolute classic. Um, but before I kind of get into the film a little bit more itself, uh, I wanted to talk about René Clément, the director. Uh, I had a look through his filmography, and he was a director. I had not seen a single one of his films, uh, despite him being kind of a classic of art and world cinema. Uh, 
That is until a couple of weeks ago, actually, when I got an opportunity and went and saw uh, his film Purple Noon on the big screen, actually. Um, for those who aren't aware, Purple Noon is essentially uh, the talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, it is just a um, an adaptation of the Patricia Highsmith novel, and it's fucking fantastic. <laughs> uh, so, but that was my first and only kind of foray into the, the filmography of René Clément. And kind of, so what I knew kind of jumping into Forbidden Game is this is a director who knows what he's doing. And by that, I mean, has kind of approaches a film with an assured confidence of what he's wanting to put on screen, how he's wanting to put it on screen, and what kind of reaction he's wanting to evoke from his audience. And Forbidden Game is certainly uh, a film that does that. I was doing a bit of research on this one, and the history behind this is kind of interesting. Um, basically, the original idea uh, came to uh, the writer Francois Boyer. Uh, basically, he wrote it as a script and found it actually impossible to sell, uh, wasn't able to get it made, so decided to kind of reverse engineer his script into a novel. Uh, that novel didn't really do much in its, you know, his home country of uh, France, but ended up becoming a bit of a sensation and a bit of a hit over in America. And as a result of that, uh, Clement and his producing partners ended up buying the rights to the novel and kind of reverse engineering it back into a script. Uh, kind of an interesting way to go about it, uh, but the result is kind of interesting. It's one way, like, I understand on the outset this, when you were presented this kind of script with the opening scene being, you know, the slaughter of a family and, you know, a young girl kind of wandering on her own. It's not exactly the easiest of cells, especially in 1952, like hot off the heels of the war ending. Um, not exactly the feel-good fare that everyone's kind of wanting to go to the movies for. But in kind of that reverse engineering it back from the novel into a script form, I think Clement and his team kind of really honed in on what they, what's kind of at the heart of this story. And it's kind of that... You know, at the same time, there's so many kind of standard anti-war films that kind of point out the hypocrisy of war. But what they're able to do with this one is presented in a unique and interesting way by having it told entirely through the perspective of children. Uh, for those that haven't seen the film, we'll kind of go. I'll go through the plot synopsis a bit, kind of beat by beat, because I think that's probably the easiest way to kind of approach this one rather than just kind of bombarding you with themes and interpretation and whatnot. Plus, if I do that, it'll be a, you know, 10-minute episode, I guess, because <laughs> it's relatively straightforward. Uh, so the film opens in, it starts in June 1940 uh, with the Battle of Paris, and sort of uh, we open on a countryside and a bridge, and it's a bunch of families who are all fleeing Paris, kind of trying to escape the bombings and things that are happening there. And in particular, we focus in on this one car that is broken down on the road. And uh, that is when we are first introduced to Paulette. Uh, she is this young girl sitting there with her lovely little Jack Russell Terrier, Jock, and her two parents. Uh, basically, the Luftwaffe, the Luftwaffe, the planes are kind of coming in, doing an airstrike on the bridge. And uh, everyone is kind of running for their lives. That bombing part, that raid passes, and unfortunately, um, Paulette and her family's car isn't able to start again. They're pushed off the road, and uh, the little dog runs away, so Paulette chases it. As a result, her parents chase after her, and unfortunately are gunned down by a uh, passing plane. 
This is within the first sort of three minutes of the film. We're presented with a very small girl. I, I'm i going to guess uh, the incredible Bridget, uh, Brigitte Fossey. Fossey? Fossey? I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, I'm assuming Paulette is supposed to be around sort of, you know, five, six years old. And she is this innocent, beautiful little porcelain, porcelain doll of a child who is just thrown into this horrific scenario. And she's this beautiful, beautiful shot with uh, her sort of touching her mother's face and her own, trying to kind of process everything that's just happened to her and the grief. And she kind of, being at such a young age, isn't really aware of what's going on. So she picks up her little dog, which unfortunately now has died as well, and sits, goes back up on the road and ends up getting kind of taken along with another family. This is sort of where Clement kind of really comes into his... The, the style of the film really starts to take place. In all of these opening scenes, it's very much shot in this kind of... Not overly cinematic way, but... Um, I mean, it's interesting to note that Clement, before moving into feature directing... Or, you know, narrative feature directing, had experience working as a documentarian. So it's got that kind of verite kind of you know, not trying to overly stylize everything and kind of present it in this realistic way with that opening scene with the bombing. But once Paulette's parents are dead and the film well and truly shifts to her perspective, he moves his camera down and it ends up focusing for pretty much the majority, the rest of the film, was shot from the eyeline of a child. The camera is down and it's lowered and it's so incredible to put us, the audience, directly into the mindset and the framing of young Paulette and eventually Michelle. Uh, a good point now to bring up Michelle. So basically, Paulette runs away and goes, you know, uh, basically when she's on this cart with this other family, the woman very callously just throws the dead dog off a bridge which is the moment in this film where I'm like, okay, yeah, they're not fucking around with this one. <laughs> like, they've just tossed a dog carcass off a bridge. Uh, she runs away to go collect her little dog, um, scoops his little body out of the river, and uh, when wandering around the countryside, bumps into a young boy who's probably about 10 years old, uh, Michelle. Uh, then what ends up happening is she gets introduced to his family, the Doles, and they end up... Uh, completely understanding who and what she is, this orphaned war child who's kind of off on her own. And so they bring her in for at least the time being. And this is the setup for the rest of the film. Basically, what happens now is uh, it's that integration of this small young girl into the lives of the Dole family, who are a kind of rural farming uh, family. Um, I know that Clement and his team kind of copped a little bit of shit for the film, um, kind of doing broad strokes and kind of reductive look at rural life, but whatever. Like, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. I do not care about that at all. But basically what then ends up happening is this intense bond and friendship um, basically unfolds and develops between Paulette and Michelle. And through that, basically, it's, it's a growth and an understanding of the two children about death. Um, Paula is still carrying her dead little dog, and she goes to try and bury him. And Michelle teaches her about graves and cemeteries. And basically, you need to have a cross if you're going to make a proper grave. And this results in the two of them uh, deciding to create their own graveyard full of, you know, First her dog, then some dead birds, cockroaches, worms, just general sort of farmyard animals that they find around the place that have died. And basically there, 
through this process of creating their own graveyard, it's them, these two characters, trying to eventually, I guess, understand and comprehend life and death and that kind of life cycle that ends up happening, albeit in an entirely kind of childish, innocent way. But the kind of inciting incident of this all is, well, if you're going to have a cemetery, you need to have crosses. And so basically, Michelle ends up uh, systematically stealing crosses from both the cemetery and the church. Uh, I mean, in amongst all of this, we also have all the interaction of the Dole family kind of being presented with this idea, being presented the everyday life of a struggling farming uh, family during wartime and how that kind of they they sort of have blinders on to it all which kind of wraps into the whole theme I guess of people trying to blindly go about what they're doing and not focus on the idea of death and this kind of looming threat that's around them um, and uh, in amongst all of that as well uh, Michelle's brother ends up dying uh, from being kicked by a horse and so we're placed with, once again, you know, uh, Paulette has had this in innately kind of first-hand experience and horrific experience with death that she's unable to process. And then uh, Michelle and his family immediately afterwards are presented with a very real first-hand experience of death. And the way that the family goes about processing it is sort of a more subdued kind of very formalistic interpretation they basically do the morning they have the burial and the ceremony the big nice cross but there's never really a opportunity or a scene of the family truly grieving or processing their death uh, the death in the family and that's kind of what Clement's kind of focusing on I guess is the idea of we we are more kind of consumed with the idea of the the ritualistic nature of death the sort of the stuff that goes around with it the building of you know the burial rites the cemetery the the religious aspect of it and we kind of use all of those elements to help process the grief as opposed to actually kind of take it in and on a personal and kind of emotional level process and understand what's going on and by presenting that kind of idea in a film through the perspective of children is absolutely fucking genius. Um, basically, especially a young child of five years old, you're not, you don't have an idea or an understanding of anything, really. I mean, Michelle, at the age of 10, is able to understand the basic ideas of what is happening and what is going on, but still, at the same time, not necessarily properly emotionally process it all, I guess. Whereas Paulette is completely cut off from understanding and, you know, almost emotionally dead, which kind of basically is what helps fuel the idea of them going about their quote-unquote forbidden game of the stealing of the crosses to help create their own graveyard. And this is sort of really the, the main thrust of the film. It is that idea of, you know, again, there is that whole, you know, meta theme of, ow, just hit my elbow and it really hurt. <laughs> um, this whole meta theme of, you know, the exploration and understanding of death and processing of all that. But basically what the film is doing, it's, it's presented the children's game, this forbidden game of them uh, stealing the crosses. And that's, you know, obviously the doubly bad thing of it's theft and it's also sacrilegious. This, this kind of hidden little thing that they're doing and they're creating and making their own little world, this... And we're kind of presented that, and the characters within the film uh, present it to us in a way of, this is absolutely fucking shocking. It is horrible, disgraceful. How dare you do this? But meanwhile, 
war is going on in the background. There's the constant in the sound in the background in the soundtrack, the sound of bombs going off. The the right there in the front of the narrative, the next door neighbor who the Dolays end up getting in a huge fight with and stuff, is a deserter. He's a soldier who's run away from the front and is back home. War is an ever-present thing in this film. I mean, God, it's the reason that Paulette is with the Dole family. Yet that is not the despicable thing. That is not the horrible game. What is the horrible game is innocent children stealing crosses to help understand and process grief and death, as opposed to processing and understanding the horrific death and nature that's happening with war right in the background. And Clement kind of, I mean, it's right there, but the film never really explicitly focuses in on that. And at no point is like, this is what we're doing. This is what we're saying. This is what this film is about. Instead, he very cleverly sticks his focus 100% on Paulette and Michelle and their kind of what they're doing and what they're processing and what they're do- uh, their forbidden game and their kind of developing friendship. It's really quite ingenious and really kind of grabs you. Uh, I thought it was interesting, actually, uh, doing, again, a bit of research and stuff for this. Uh, Brigitte Fossey, uh, basically, when she, uh, later in life, when she was interviewed, she had said that uh, she compared her uh, infantile alter ego of Paulette to Lady Macbeth, which is an interesting kind of take on it, the idea that she kind of... I mean, in a less sinister and unknowing way of Lady Macbeth, but the idea that she's kind of this driving force that is pushing Michelle, the um, this innocent boy, to kind of commit these horrible (laughs) acts, you know, of stealing and sacrilege and things, uh, for kind of help her own gain and her own processing. It's it's an interesting take. Um, But the other interesting one I thought was the way that Clement presents. Uh, Paulette, the way that he kind of films her, despite the fact that she's, you know, a five-year-old child, she's almost presented as a bit of a film noir, like femme fatale. The lighting and the shadows that he he casts across her face, not to mention the fact, you know, her porcelain looks. Like I said, she's like this insane little baby doll kind of thing. Um, but especially when she's up in the attic in Michelle's bedroom and stuff, the kind of it's almost that Venetian lighting, like really highlighting the eyes. And things, and she is this kind of beautiful little force that comes into Michelle's world and kind of drives him and pushes him into this dark nature. It's it's pretty it's pretty great. This little kind of toying with these ideas and infusing the noirness into this otherwise kind of neo realistic kind of uh, war satire. And I think that kind of, I mean, calling her an out and out femme fatale is obviously a little bit ridiculous given that she's a very small child but kind of examining it you know using that prism of the the lady macbeth the the femme fatale aspect kind of uh to accentuate that driving force that brings out the the kind of not evil but like that that malicious kind of you know the criminal intent that ends up happening with michelle is really interesting and um you know i uh, reading the essay that came along with the Criterion Edition, um, Forbidding Games, Death and the Maiden by Peter Matthews, um, there's one little highlight that I, I, I want to read here. Um, War is responsible for the strange, aberrant behavior of Michelle and Paulette. To, w- to that extent, the film fulfills its ethical duty, but on a more profound level, death is answered by those dark, instinctual forces that reside in all children, in everyone we could only, if we could only admit it. Uh, that's 
at the core why I think I connected with this film. Basically, the idea of children... <laughs> I'm going to sound like an idiot here, uh, but children are like bastards. <laughs> they are just simple-minded, like they are pure like emotion and they are pure instinct uh basically they they are the persona they are kind of a us under a microscope everything is on front street there's no messing about there's kind of no hiding what's going on and so by clement and you know i mean going back to uh boyer with his original novel and stuff taking a story and focusing and wanting to examine the horrors and the kind of the shutdown emotionally that happens in the processing of death and grief through war, but doing it through a framework of children, uh, people who are pure innocence, but then also pure self-motivated, kind of self-driven, I guess. We're kind of able to... They're able to kind of cleanly present something that is self-preservation and self-interest without us, the audience, kind of turning on them or kind of going against the grain, we still empathize and sympathize with these children and connect with them because they're children and we understand their motivations are not, you know, malicious. They, they are just going about their actions in an attempt to process and understand. And I think it's absolutely kind of, it's, it's really engaging. Um, my one thing I would say, though, that did kind of rub me a little, not the wrong way, but it kind of was a little bit of a disconnect for me. Uh, in watching this, is that the film starts so predominantly as a strict, dramatic, heavy film, obviously with the death of Paulette's parents, the throwing of a dead dog off a bridge, um, and it's this heartbreaking kind of brutal scene that we're presented. And then once we settle into family life on the Dole farm and Michelle and Paulette kind of their friendship growing and evolving, it slips into realms of kind of light-hearted comedy almost like not explicit comedy but there's a t definite tonal shift like i mean there's a fucking scene in this film where two like rival neighbors have a fight in an open grave it's it's there are moments that are played for slapstick or, or kind of light-heartedness and it's really at odds with the the initial setup of the theme of the film but in as i'm saying that at the same time that also kind of works to accentuate the overall theme of what what the film's doing and saying we we hide these emotions and we don't want to face the fact that we're dealing with something a story that's you know all about grief and death and so the film itself is trying to kind of hide that and mask that by just kind of moving into a pastoral kind of dramedy almost like here's the life of these people aren't they kind of quaint and fun and happy don't focus on the death do not focus on the death um, and so I think it is an absolutely fantastic film, um, not without its kind of flaws. Like I said, the tonal shift can be very jarring um, and doesn't necessarily work entirely for me. But again, I 100% understand why it's there and what it's doing. Uh, cinematography, as I mentioned, is fucking incredible. The, the way that it completely shifts focus and we're presented the film entirely almost from the perspective of a child, low angle shots down to the ground. Everything looks big and grand. Even the tiny cabin where there's sort of, you know, six people sleeping in a room, it looks massive because we're being presented it through the eyes of a five-year-old child. He really knows where to place his camera and how to really get his images on screen for us. 
Uh, I mean, the other big thing is the music. Uh, in particular, there, there's a guitar theme in this film that is sort of legendary. I believe the piece of music is called uh, Romance. Um, yeah, this very famous kind of guitar theme that kind of plays throughout this film. It's this beautiful kind of uplifting pastoral but also melancholy sound to it, which really does just helps to encapsulate the mood that the film is going for. Um, solidly enjoyed this one and really looking forward to diving into some more Rene Clement, um, especially because it's like chalk and fucking cheese going from, you know, Purple Noon to Forbidden Games. And from what I understand about Clement, he, why he kind of never really has that kind of connection and that kind of knowing and understanding with modern audiences is because he was a bit of a workman director where he would just jump from genre to genre and there's not kind of a unique kind of style or theme to his filmography. So I'm really interested to check out some of some more of his stuff. But uh, on that note, uh, let's go into some trivia, shall we? Uh, so the film was nominated for an Academy Award in 1955 for Best Screenplay. And interestingly enough, it won an honorary Oscar in 1953 for Best Foreign Language Film. Uh, this wasn't a category at this point. Uh, it was just awarded a special award because people were like, God damn, this movie's great. Uh, we need to give you a Best Foreign Language Film Oscar. And then uh, in the following years, they decided, screw it, we should probably make that an award. Uh, it also won the BAFTA for Best Film from Any Source in 1954, was listed as one of the top foreign films by the National Board of Review, and won the Gold Line at the Venice Film Festival. Uh, it's also included in the 1001 Movies to See Before You Die book and Roger Ebert's list of great movies. Uh, Roger had this to say about the film. Movies like Clement's Forbidden Game cannot work unless they are allowed to be completely simple, without guile, transparent. It doesn't try to create emotion, but observe them. Uh, which I think is very well put. Uh, Brigitte Fossey claimed that when her family saw a newspaper ad searching for a 9- to 11-year-old girl for a film, they brought her to the audition despite the fact that she was only 6. Uh, she was then noticed by Renée Clément's wife, and the major part of Paulette was immediately cast. Um, but yeah, that's really sort of about it for trivia. Uh, I don't... We're, we're going to skip the segment uh, of what does Claire think about this film, because uh, Claire is actually away on school camp at the moment. Uh, so she's not around to kind of record that little section. So we're going to forego that one for this week and just dive straight into the tagline. Uh, my attempt for this one is, uh, in the hearts of children lies forbidden games. Yeah, that'll work. Why not? Who cares? It's fine. Um, we'll move on to the actual Criterion edition itself. Uh, the film is actually out of print from Criterion, but if you're able to track down the one-disc DVD, it comes with a collection of new and archival interviews with director René Clermont and actress Brigitte Fossey, alternate opening and ending of the film, original theatrical trailer, and the usual booklet and essays that Criterion usually do. Uh, yeah, and on that note, I guess we'll wrap it up on Forbidden Games. Quality movie. Uh, the more I kind of sat with it and thought about it, the more I truly enjoyed it. So if you've never seen it or haven't seen it for a while, I highly recommend giving it another look. But uh, in the meantime, as always, there's the Patreon, the Instagram, Letterbox, all the usual stuff that's in the episode notes there. Uh, we're doing some fun stuff over on the Patreon. We're about to record this week a 
episode on uh, this year's Best Picture winner. So yeah, uh, head over there, uh, subscribe if you like. Uh, any We love any support that uh, is given over on the Patreon. It helps us kind of pay the server costs and keep this thing going. So we love anyone that's able to kind of help us out with that and truly appreciate it. Otherwise, we will be back in a fortnight's time, I promise, um, with our next episode, The Bad Sleep Well by Akira Kurosawa. And I know for a fact Lee will be back with me for that one. So tune in in a fortnight's time for that. But otherwise, for this week's episode, I'm Chris. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.